Let us take our Bibles and begin in Luke chapter 6. Our New Testament reading is Luke chapter 6, verses 37 and 38. And then we will continue our regular reading in Genesis chapter 13 today. Beloved, let us ask for the Lord's help. Please pray with me. Our most gracious God, we come before you now, Lord, in prayer, humble petitioners, beggars, one and all. Oh, gracious God, we pray that you would help us. For your own glory, help us. That we would be that which you would have us to be, that we would be a people hallowed, hallowed under the weight of your name, made holy by your own holiness. Oh, gracious Lord, we pray that it would be your pleasure to make us look even more like you, more like your son, Jesus Christ. For we have indeed been redeemed from death and condemnation so that we might become imitators of God. Dear beloved children who are so pleased and eager to be like their father in heaven and like their savior, Oh, Lord, we pray that your word would bring about such fruit in us. We pray that you would even break up the, the hardest of hearts among us today. Lord, that we, we ask that you would walk in our midst, dispensing gifts to us, giving us those ears that hear and understand and believe and obey, giving us those wills that are tender and pliable under your gaze giving us those hearts that burn for the things of your eternal kingdom. Oh, Lord, we pray to you who are Lord in the midst of the lampstands. Set us upon fire today. Let us be enlightened today by your light. Help us, we pray, for the sake of your name, through Jesus Christ. Amen. Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured Back to you. Now, Genesis chapter 13, beginning at verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, 
then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is God's word. <clears throat> in, his, in his wonderful old book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, author Jeremiah Burroughs has a long discussion on the dangers of prosperity. Don't worry, men who are in the Wednesday night group, we haven't gotten to this section yet. A long discussion on the dangers of prosperity. He begins that section by saying, quote, many men and women look at the shine and glitter of prosperity, but they little think of the burden. This is one of the great dangers of prosperity, says Burroughs. We are so easily deceived into thinking riches are all glory and delight. We drop our guard and do not consider what piercing sorrows will come to us if outward prosperity comes to us. How many of you have had fathers who warned you that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil? How many of you have friends who tell you that by the craving for riches, some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs? Now, of course, it is the Apostle Paul who gives those warnings you just heard in 1 Timothy 6.10. That means he is a good father to you. He is a good friend to you. But his warnings are those we do not hear much. We certainly do not hear them from stockbrokers. We certainly don't see these warnings stamped in fluorescent print on lottery tickets. We do not hear these warnings much because most people are not very skilled at thinking about the trouble of prosperity. To help us, Burroughs again says, quote, sometimes we look upon the prosperity of men and think, this man lives well and comfortably. But if, if we only knew what troubles he has in his family, in his possessions, in his dealings with men, we would not think his position so happy. A man may have a very fine new shoe, but nobody knows where it pinches him except the one who wears it. 
Who would have thought? Who would have thought that Abram's wealth would be the next great pinch in his life? Genesis 13.2 says Abram comes back to Canaan, quote, very rich in livestock, in silver and gold. But who would have thought that these riches, first acquired in Haran, then multiplied greatly in Egypt, who would have thought that these riches would become the next great test of Abram's faith? Abram's faith had already been tested by adversity, the severe famine that we read about in chapter 12. He did not do so well under that test. Yet his repentance was quite excellent, true, and full repentance. But now he's back in Canaan, and his faith is to be tested again, this time by prosperity. Abram had become so rich, even his nephew Lot, who was with him, had become rich. Verse 5 says Lot also had flocks and herds and tents. Both men even had to hire and maintain multiple herdsmen to watch over their flocks. To get a sense of Abram's wealth, consider something you learn from the next chapter. Chapter 14, when Abram has to go and rescue Lot, who has been taken captive in a raid. Genesis 14, 14 says, Abram brings with him his 318 trained men. How many trained men do you have, fellas? These are just his trained men. Not the old guys with bad knees like me. We stayed home. 318 trained men, herdsmen. Abram and Lot are both mid-sized businesses in modern lingo. To have this many servants, Abram's a rich man. But none of his wealth... None of his fortune, none of his affluence make his problems decrease. Outward prosperity only made his problems increase. Verse 6 says, Abram's and Lot's possessions were so great, the land could not support both of them. Canaan was so crowded by their flocks and herds and servants, soon there was strife Soon there is quarreling, which means Abram and Lot were being tempted to hurt each other, tempted to ruin each other. They were being tempted to see each other as enemies, which is just one step from an even greater evil, rejoicing when calamity befalls your opponent. Proverbs 24, 17. With strife increasing, Abram and Lot were moving backward to the way of Cain, who killed his brother Abel. Abram and Lot were being tempted toward the very evil for which the Lord had indeed brought a flood of judgment on the whole world in the days of Noah. Prosperity had become the next great test of Abram's faith. But why? Why would God arrange for his servant Abram to endure a test now based on his prosperity? The short answer is because God wanted Abram's faith to be pushed, to be trained, to be strengthened to that very end for which faith had been given to him. 
the glories of the age to come. That's why the Lord wanted this test for his servant. Abram had not been given a faith that could only hope and survive on pleasant earthly outcomes in this present age. That's not even a Christian faith. That's a worldly faith. That would be a faith that could be easily hijacked by any trickster or by any religious charlatan or by the devil himself, hijacked by anyone who could deliver immediate earthly results, a better job, a better physical health, a better income, a better marriage, a better life, better, better, better. Such a counterfeit faith is not the faith God gives to Abram or any soul belonging to his elect church. God is going to put Abram under the test of prosperity because he wants to test the true faith of Abram. And by saying test, we do not mean that God is trying to discover something that he doesn't know. He's putting Abram's faith under a trial. He knows everything there needs to be known about Abram. But he's putting this faith in the kiln, under the fire, to see it strengthened and brought to maturity. The Lord wants Abram's faith tested, so it is pushed toward that end for which it had been given, the glories of the age to come. The faith God gives is the conviction of things not seen, right? Hebrews 11.1, 1, that's the only faith God gives his elect. The conviction of things not seen. Coming out of Egypt, Abram has great earthly prosperity. He can see it all. It doesn't take any faith to see it. But will he willingly offer it up? Will he willingly put it all at risk? Will he willingly prioritize something other than earthly prosperity? Will he willingly even prioritize something other than the land? Will Abram offer up the land? Would God dare ask him to do such a thing? Well, you bet he would. Because he's going to ask him to offer up Isaac. You bet he would be asked to offer up the land. And that's exactly what he does in Genesis 13. As he succeeds, as he passes, as he is ripened through this test of faith. Why would Abram be willing to prioritize something else than the land? Why would he be willing to offer up and risk and, and give away? Well, he would do so willingly. He would do so willingly only if his faith is not in the visible things of earth, but in the vis invisible God of heaven. Now, I need you to remember something to hold all this together. Abram was a longtime idolater, right? He, had, he was a longtime idolater who had been converted. God had given him faith to believe the promises of God. But those promises were never just about Abram getting earthly stuff. God had promised himself to Abram. Remember the language from chapter 12. Abram, go to the land that I will show you. 
I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. To your offspring, I will give this land. Abram has none of those earthly things unless he also has God. Abram's confidence was never to be just in the visible things God would do for him, but in the invisible God who would do those things. Beloved, there are some people who don't want this kind of faith. There are some people who pass in and out of churches who don't want this kind of faith. They don't want a faith in the invisible God. They want a faith in the visible things God can do for them. They want an earthly faith, a worldly faith. They want to serve God so that God serves them. They want a transactional faith. God gives no such faith. That faith is natural to the fallen man. It shouldn't even be called faith. We only call it that because men do. Abram and all believers are given a faith that believes with certainty in the invisible things of God. Does that mean God gives us nothing earthly? Of course it doesn't. He gives us many things. But he will put those things in jeopardy to strengthen our faith to look beyond the earthly plane to the heavenly. And we will get to that in a moment. So Abraham's confidence was never to just be in the visible things God would do for him, but in the invisible God who would do those things. So when God comes to strengthen his children's faith, Abram's, yours, he puts the visible things in jeopardy so we might go looking further and go looking deeper for God himself as our true portion. This is the faith we find in King David, who said, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Psalm 142.5. It's the same faith we find in Asaph, who said, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73, 25, 26. And we find the same faith in Paul, who said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Beloved, the faith you just heard about in Paul, Asaph, and David is not a different kind of faith than that which the Lord is training and pushing and ripening in Abraham. So the Lord is going to put Abram in a place where he will either offer up the land to Lot or he will cling to it and grasp it as if it is the only thing that is his true portion. I want to encourage you, fathers. You need to change the way you talk to your children about faith. You must change the way you speak about your faith in God if it is not, does not sound like Paul and Asaph and David. If your language of faith is always 
terminating in an earthly reward, you are not speaking of the faith that God gives. If your language of faith at home is always telling your children, let's just wait and believe God, maybe that that will be found. That's a good thing to say to a child. But if that's all you are telling them, just other versions of that, let's just wait and God will pull it off. Where everything gets pulled off in this age, in this year, in this life, you're not training them to think rightly about God or about their own faith. The faith that we have been given is a faith that takes God as our portion, even though we lose the whole world. And not until that faith is the one that's tested and strengthened in us will we be able to start giving up the things of the world with true joy and true zeal. Burroughs is quite helpful again on the same point. He says, the peace of God is not enough to a gracious heart, except it may have the God of that peace. I must have the cause as well as the effect. I must see from whence my peace comes and enjoy the fountain of my peace as well as the stream of my peace. And so in other mercies too, have I health from God? I must have the God of my health to be my portion or else I am not satisfied. It is not life, but the God of my life. It is not riches, but the God of those riches. The carnal heart is always satisfied with the stream, and that's all they look for. They never go up to the fountain. The carnal heart is simply content with the gifts and has no interest in the giver. The faith God gives is the faith God tests, and he is testing it so it ripens to its true nature, which is to lay hold with conviction of all the unseen bounties of God himself, God's power, God's love, God's infinitude, God's eternality, God's goodness, his unchangeableness, his wisdom, his righteousness, all of these things and more reconciled to you through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Faith that you have received from the Spirit is to find God as your portion. And instead of that list, too often we settle for a list that involves things that can be put on a scale or can be bought and sold. Now let's look what Abram does under the weight of this test of prosperity. Abram does not prioritize his own prosperity. He does not even prioritize the land. Instead, he willingly offers the land up to his nephew Lot. Verse 8 and 9. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. By faith, Abram willingly puts at risk his whole earthly future. By faith, he prioritizes something other 
than his own earthly prosperity. Now, at first glance, we might think he is prioritizing Lot's prosperity, giving Lot first dibs on the best land. But that is not at all what Abram is prioritizing. The clue to Abram's priorities is in a word used twice in the text, and that word is strife. In verse 7, Moses, the narrator here, tells us there was strife. But then in verse 8, Abram has the exact same Hebrew word in his mouth when he says, let there be no strife between you and me, for we are kinsmen. Here's Abram's priority. Peace. Peace is Abram's priority. He will risk, he will sacrifice, he will offer up his earthly treasure so strife will end and peace may come between Lot and him. And we should really see that the radical thing that Abram is offering up is not really just his riches because he might be able to manage somewhat. He's really offering up the land, letting Lot choose where he will live, where he will pasture. Now, to make this effort even more likely, this effort towards peace, even more likely to succeed, Abram shrewdly and with great generosity allows Lot to choose his land first. This is remarkable because Abram was the man of authority and rank here. He's the uncle not nephew Lot. Even the very fact that it is Abram who must announce this deal shows that it is Abram with the rank. But Abram does it to create peace. This is all about creating peace where there has been hostility. By having Lot choose first, there will be no opportunity for later resentment. But it is a great risk to Abram What will he have left? Will he even have the portion of the land of Canaan? But because of his faith, because of his faith, Abram knew that it didn't matter. It didn't matter. God had promised to give Abram's offspring the land. So as Kent Hughes put it, by faith, Abram knows that even if he gave the land away a thousand times, it would go to his descendants anyway. This man's faith is ripening in the unseen God who said, I will, I will, I will. (coughs) Now we have to ask the question, why does the Holy Spirit put such a high priority on peace and peacemaking in this text? You know, we are very jaded in the 21st century. We see so much hostility among people, it's almost perhaps weird to us that a whole scene in Abram's life would be dedicated to him making peace with his nephew Lot. Why does the Spirit want the church to see this remarkable priority in Abram for ending strife? Such a priority that he will offer up the land to achieve it. Well, beloved, because this peacemaking is the very heart of God's relationship with his church. This is God's own priority with his people. When God first came to Abram, they were not at peace. 
Abram was a man of hostility before God. He was an idolater. He was living life his own way. Worshipping whatever rock he wanted to worship before, or whatever tree he wanted to worship before, or under whatever moon he wanted to call on, and doing all of it to bring him some kind of earthly prosperity, just like all the other rock worshippers were doing. But God came to Abraham anyway. And what did God come to do? He came to make peace. It was the one true and living God who set in Abram's heart the foundation stone of divine communion, the mighty one, bearing the humiliation of creating peace with the lesser, foolish, fallen one. That's what the Lord did with Abram. And now, by imitation, Abram, the uncle, is doing the same with the nephew. This is why the Holy Spirit wants the ancient church and the modern church to see Abram's priority of peace so that we would never take our eyes off this foundation stone. What do you want the church to prioritize? Do you want the church to prioritize cultural transformation? Do you want the church to prioritize simply doctrine for doctrine's sake? Do you want the church to prioritize moral reform? Beloved, what you see happening in chapter 13 is that which the Holy Spirit wants the church to prioritize. The reason this is here is so that we would see that Abram's faith has been conquered by the peacemaking God who came to him when he was a hostile. The gospel is the priority of the church. The announcement of peace to men who are in hostilities with God is the priority of the church. Then there are other things. But if we don't preach the gospel, if we don't call men and women to look upon the God of peacemaking, who, the, who is the mighty one who humiliates himself in bringing the lesser one back through peace, if we don't bring that message forth, we are not worth being called a church. Quit coming if we stop talking about that. Go do something else. I don't know if you can golf in winter, but that would be worthwhile. If we abandon this peacemaking foundation stone, if we look away from it, we do not deserve to be a church. You know, it's very tempting to look at this text and say, oh, isn't that sweet? Uncle Abe patting little Lot on the head and giving him a choice to kind of make a run at it and maybe kind of become a businessman. That is not what's happening here. Abram has been subdued by the peacemaker himself, the living God, who came to him when he was far off and called him to peace. Where do we ever see God, the mightier one, offering up something of great value to make peace with lesser foolish ones. Well, you hear it in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You hear it in Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, 
you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see what's happening? In Abram, we are getting a glimpse not only of what is coming in the future history of redemption. Does that sentence make sense? (laughs) From his perspective, in Abraham, we not only have a glimpse of what is coming, but who is coming. Because remember the promise from Genesis 12. The promise is that from one of Abram's offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. An offspring of Abram is going to come. And what is he going to do when he comes? He's going to do what we already saw a glimpse of in Abram. He's going to come and make peace. He's going to come and offer up that which seems beyond wealthy, beyond wonderful. He's going to offer up his own position in heaven and come down and become a servant, obedient unto death to make peace with sinners. Abram is already being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And we see it through his faith in giving Lot this choice. Did we not even hear in Philippians 2, 6 once, Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider being equal with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by becoming in the likeness of human form, obedient unto death. So, what we wonderfully see in Abram is that Abram, by God's grace and through faith, has no need, like Lot apparently does, to judge his future by what he sees with his eyes. Unfortunately, Lot is under that great weakness. He chooses where he will live based on how it pleases his eyes. And he ends up down in the valley by the Jordan, down near the town of Sodom. And this will cause him him much pain and much trouble in his family. We wouldn't know it unless Peter told us in his second epistle that Lot was a righteous man. Lot is also a man of weak faith, driven by sight. But not Abram. Abram learns to judge his future not by what he sees, but by the presence and the promise and the power of God. Abram did not even need for things to work out for him in one year, or in two years, or in three years. He wanted to be wherever God would be. He was learning life with God is the end of faith, not some earthly possession. He was learning that life with God is the end of faith, not some better arrangement in the present evil age. And because he was learning this, Abram became what Cain could not become. Abram became his brother's keeper. Instead of hitting Lot on the head with a rock and calling it a farming accident, he gives Lot a future and humiliates himself by letting Lot 
take a rank of choice that he does not possess. So Abram does with what we should all do with our faith. He removes strife where he can remove strife, even if it humiliates him. Beloved, are you ready to live by that kind of faith? Do you want that kind of faith? Do you want such a faith in God that you are willing to be humiliated to create peace? Because you value peace so much. Why would you value peace so much? Because you have discovered that God bringing you into his peace by his own humiliation, in which he did not spare his divine son, but offered him up as a sinner on the cross, though he was without sin, that God brought you into his peace by that cross. That, is, that has to be, if you're a Christian, the greatest treasure in your life. That has to be the most important thing to you, this peace. How can you not then have the faith to let it rule you in the way you do everything? Do you want the kind of faith where you would be glad to be humiliated to create peace? This is the only kind of faith God gives to the children of God. Abram ends up showing Lot something that's hard for Lot to see. That Abram is a peacemaker because he does not need to grasp for the world. Because he has something better than the world. He has the living God. And he can never be satisfied then in just having the world. If he did not have God... You could give him a thousand Canaans. You could give him three times as many flocks. And he wouldn't be satisfied. Because God is his portion. That's the kind of faith we're talking about. The men of the world seek after wealth. And think if they had thus much and thus much, they would then be content. Burroughs again. Perhaps some think, if I had only... 200,000 a year, or 300,000, then I would have enough. But then along comes another and says, I need a million a year, then I would be satisfied. But a gracious heart says that if he had 100,000 times so much a year, it would not satisfy. If he had the quintessence of all the excellences of all the creatures in the world, it could not satisfy. Yet it is this man who can sing, who can be merry, who can be joyful, even when he only has a crust of bread, because God is his portion. He is satisfied. Beloved, this is the faith that the Lord is training and ripening in Abram and in all who are the offspring of Abram. And you are the offspring of Abram. You are the offspring of Abraham, Galatians 3 says. All who have faith in Christ. So you are under the same tutelage of the same Father. He is testing your faith to the same ends, the ends for which that faith has been given, to hope in the glories of the age to come and not in the visible things of this age. The Christian, then, is free to offer up the very thing Christ said he had come to keep for us. Yes, our life. 
We can offer up even our earthly lives because we see real life. We see that real life is not here in this present evil age. Real life, the life which Christ has promised to keep for us, it is life in the age to come. And we see that and know that by faith, and we now start to deal out of that wonderful portion. So, beloved, the challenge to all of us then, if we are hearing this text well, is first a challenge of humiliation by faith. Are we willing to lower our rank and offer up the things of this world so that we can make peace with other sinners? You are already doing that if you are the elect of God. You're already doing that because you are giving your time, your money, your words to build up the church of God. The Lord is always continuing the growing, though, isn't he? The second lesson, then, from today is do you want a faith? Do you want a ripened, mature faith that will take God as your portion, that will take God as your inheritance, that will take God as your treasure? Would that be enough for you? Is, can God be enough for you? Or are the things of the earth more interesting to you, more precious to you, more desirable to you than the things of the age to come? What kind of faith is it that you have? Ask God to test your faith. He will. Let us pray. O gracious Father, test our faith and give us all that we need to benefit from the test in every way that our faith would come out tried and true, that it would come out firmer, stronger, not so little, not so earthly. Father, we pray that you would especially speak to each of us as we have need about why we might be unwilling to be humiliated to make peace. Why we are slow to give away things and even give away our schedule and give away our prosperity and give away the life that we plan for ourselves. Why we're so slow to give that away for things that are not eternal. But Lord, we'll need more help than that. Shine into our hearts why it is so good, why it is so right, why it is so glorious to give away these things so that we might call men and women, boys and girls, to peace before the very throne of God through Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, let us not keep and continue living like Lot. Let us not be driven through life by what our eyes can see. Let us be carried along, Lord, by that word, that which we hear, those promises, those wonderful testimonies to our soul of the glories to come in the age to come. 
Oh, Lord, we pray that you would make this so large in us that we would be free from clinging and grasping to the things of this age. We thank you for the way you shepherd Abram, for we find in it the very playbook by which you are now shepherding us. We thank you that you are determined that our faith, which you have given to us, would ripen to its true and proper end, a, a satisfaction that is only in the things of the world to come, where our head is already seated. Oh Lord, forgive us for being so easily satisfied by a few more thousand dollars. Forgive us by being so easily satisfied by the things of earth. Oh, shepherd us and shake us and bring us to such a clear sight of that which is a treasure to not be taken. In Jesus' name, amen.